thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. So we've been looking at Luke's account, and we talked about how Luke was a historian. So he went and he found some eyewitnesses, like we learned last week about Joanna and her husband Shuza, who were, Shuza was in Herod, King Herod's household, and he worked for Herod. He was someone who knew, so they had more information. Luke is a very detailed account. He wants us to know what happened to Jesus in this passion, in this last stretch of his life as he stands in the shadow of the cross. And so as we go in today's story, we've seen that Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. Pilate has him, learns he's Herod's subject from Galilee, sends him. Herod mocks and abuses him and brings him back. He sends him back to Pilate and says basically, well, I don't know what you want me to do with this guy. And that's where we pick up the story today in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 13. As Pilate is once again face to face with Jesus, but something's different. He's not amused in the morning waiting for his day of relaxation to begin as he was last week. There is a loud mob outside his window. People are gathering. Remember, there's people everywhere in town for the Passover. If you know the story, you know these are many of the same people who came out and cheered as Jesus rode in on a donkey and he completed the prophecy of Zechariah 9. And they shouted, they shouted, Hosanna, Hoshina, praise you God for you send the one who can save us. But now the crowd is yelling something different. And Pilate, the Roman governor, is faced with a very difficult situation. Let's look here in Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold... I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Remember, they had brought three charges. They said he was a tax evasion. They said he was causing insurrection. And he wanted to be a king over Caesar. That's what they had told Pilate. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man. And release to us Barabbas, a man who, who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found him in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. For whom they asked, 
when he delivered Jesus over to their will. In the classic country song, Boot, Scoot, and Boogie, it's a classic to me. I like Hank Williams Jr. as well and Johnny Cash, so don't hold this against me. There's a line in that song, there were outlaws, in-laws, crooks, and straights. Now, in that song, they were all out there making it shake, learning to do the boot, scoot, and boogie, which your pastor can do and will not do for you today. I grew up line dancing. I used to love it, and I always thought when that song would play, and in the 90s when I was a young man and I was out dancing on Friday nights, and I would always hear that song and chuckle to myself and think, that's a great line. And in the country, when you're honky-tonk, everybody would show up. It was a big deal, right? The Passover on a national level was that event for God's people, for the children of Israel. And there were so many people in the town, you would step on someone. I thought of this, actually, when I was at Universal Studios this winter. I couldn't turn around without stepping on someone. And unfortunately, a lot of people from around the world are smaller than me. And so I would bump into them, not to be rude, because I just wouldn't see them. And I'd say, I'm so sorry. And I meant it. I didn't mean, I didn't, you know, and they'd yell something at me that I'm glad I didn't understand often, and... Their face told me they were dissatisfied. I'm a pastor. I'm used to that. It's okay. It's one of those things, though. Wherever you look around the crowd, you would see people from all different places. People on the right side of the tracks. People on the wrong side of the tracks. The highest of society and the lowest of the low. But yet we read here in Luke's gospel, they all were shouting with one voice. To crucify Jesus. They were calling that he should be sent away and killed. The worst death the Romans allowed. And in exchange, as was the custom we know from other Gospels, instead of releasing Jesus, who Pilate tells him three times, there's nothing this guy deserves death for. They shout louder. And louder, with one voice, all of them. Like last week, I want you to look in the story and think about who you are in the crowd as you think of the faces, all different people from all different places, from all different walks of life, the least educated to the aristocracy that he calls before him, those who present Jesus to be killed. The Presbyterians would be at the front of the line. We all would be at the front of the line. Pilate's looking upon Jesus as he is standing bloody and beaten with that robe over him, with that crown of thorns digging into his head. And though he enjoyed commiserating with Herod, and that kind of brought them a little bit of parody when they had kind of like gangsters been killing one another's people and fighting over their territories... In this moment, Herod has this deep understanding. It's not Herod, I'm sorry. Pilate has this deep understanding. Pilate knows that Jesus is so innocent. Maybe as we learn from Matthew's gospel, it's because his wife has a dream and she comes to him and says, don't have anything to do with this guy. He's, he's innocent. This guy's hands 
you know, you don't want his blood on your hands. This guy hasn't done anything. The enormity of the situation for Herod as a person, as a politician, as a leader, it all comes to a head. And he stands there and he looks at this innocent man who's been beaten and he thinks, maybe I can just do a little more. Maybe if I flog him or beat him in front of the crowd, they'll leave him alone and the people continue to yell. He's like, no, no, I'm just going to punish him. I'm going to send them away. And the crowd gets louder and louder, screaming for Jesus' blood to be shed. Suddenly and inexplicably, Pilate faces a crisis in his own heart as he realizes what's happening. As this part of the story reaches its culmination, the fever pitch begins, who are you in the story? I want you to think about that this day. Are you like Pilate? Are you the people in the crowd? Are you Barabbas waiting in prison, hearing what's going on there? Barabbas was there, they bring him out. He hears the crowd yelling, crucify him. Barabbas is wondering if they mean him. So let's delve into the story. As Pilate looks at Jesus, knowing he's innocent, but he has to make a decision. You see, there's already been one insurrection that's taken place. One insurrection has already happened, and Pilate knows that the guys at the top of the food chain in Rome are watching him. He can't afford to make the wrong decision. They can't have another riot. After all, that's how guys like Barabbas, who had killed and who had led this insurrection, ended up in prison. And Pilate says, no, it's Jesus. And they say, crucify him. As we look at Matthew's gospel in Matthew 27, 24, Pilate does something symbolic. He does something symbolic. He washes his hands in front of the people. You know that phrase, right? I wash my hands of this. You've probably used that before. I taught that to my kids when they were about seven and nine, when they wanted to do something that I knew was going to cause a big mess. But I knew they were going to do it anyhow, and so I said, I wash my hands of this. But my kids going to Christian school said, Dad, that didn't work for Pilate either. <laughs> Smart kids. They were right. They made a mess, and like all good fathers, I pretended I didn't know what happened. And then cleaned it up anyhow. This is a spiritual disaster culminating in the physical world. The spiritual conflict. Hell must have been drunk with excitement that Jesus was going to finally be killed. Finally an end. And on top of that, the injustice, a brutal murderer released. As Pilate weighs his decision, his choice. He washes his hands. He says, hey, I've got nothing to do with this. Maybe like me, you think of quotes from people like Winston Churchill. All that needs to happen for evil to prevail is for good men and women to stand by and do nothing. Pilate knows 
and he tries to wash his hands, but in reality, the crowd is screaming for Jesus' blood. Pilate lets them have Jesus, even though he knows he doesn't deserve any of this. And at that moment, we see in the story, only one innocent man is present in this moment. And they're sending him to the cross to die. Pilate can wash his hands, he can make a spectacle all he wants, he can do whatever, but rather than have a riot, he takes the safe bet and washes his hand and he says, I'm innocent, do what you want. When have you and I face this kind of a decision? Don't look at me, I told you this was a bad idea. I tried to stop them, Mom. Or if you're older, honey, you are so beautiful. <laughs> What's the big deal? Pilate just did what we would do, but he had more power. He had more in control. You see, that's the thing. It starts with something little. The compromises start in the littlest parts of our lives. It's never just a life and death situation, so it seems. It's the little compromises that catch up to us. He gives in. He gives in. Pilate looks at the situation. He says, I'm not losing everything I've got for some guy who they hate. Pilate's sin was fear. He was afraid of losing his life. His well-being, his prominence. He lets an innocent man die for his convenience. But it never starts that simple, does it? It's the little compromises at work, at home, on the internet, whatever it is for you, that leads to the big moment where fear of loss Loss of control, loss of power, loss of the good life comes in. So Pilate looks at the, the screams of the crowd, the cries, and he does what's popular. He does what gets him the favor to be on the right side of history, he thinks. How often have you heard that in the news lately? Make sure you're on the right side of history. Herod and Pilate and all these guys, Pilate doesn't even think about it. He's on the wrong side of God's story. He's sending God to the cross. The crowd is on the wrong side. There's only one innocent person. Pilate makes a bad decision, and it's a bad decision because he chooses what is acceptable and what is popular over what he knows is true and right. We've all been there. Maybe you see your face in Pilate. I know I do. We've all been there. Someone says something inappropriate and you laugh because you're embarrassed and you don't want anybody to know. Someone at work wants to do something that you know you shouldn't do. Oh, you may get away with it and there may be a little extra money for the company, but it's, it's not right. You're doing wrong to somebody. That's just the way things are done in the world, you tell yourself. 
someone says something horrible about someone else and we're silent. We've all been guilty in our hearts of cowardice. That's what happens, and we see this in verse 23 of Luke 23. They were urgent. They were demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. One of my youth group kids, I've said this before, Don Keeley used to wear a t-shirt that said, black shirt with white letters, beware of stupid people in large groups. And I said to Don, what's that shirt mean? He was in eighth grade at the time. He's a, he's a grown man now with a family. I said, what's that mean, Don? And he said, stupid to me means sinful. Smart kid. When in our sinfulness have we gone along with the crowd? That's the funny thing. We all know that there have been times when we've been afraid to stand for Jesus in our lives. Because we're afraid of what it will cost us or what other people will think about us. And we convince ourselves that we're somehow noble, like Pilate does washing his hands. I'm just going to keep the peace. I'm doing what needs to be done. You may not understand this now, but you'll understand it someday, kid. It's the funny thing. As we look here at Ephesians chapter 4, we find that the church itself, and make no mistake, we are each bricks of the church. We are the building blocks of the church. We are the church, all of us, me too, and I've done this too. I don't stand before you an innocent guy. We recognize that the church itself, all of us being what composes it, begins to crumble when we fail to recognize the centrality of the truth of God's word to who we are. By Easter this year, I intend to have Bibles in all the seats in this place, and I want to encourage you to bring them yourself. I'm going to pay for them if nobody else wants to, because we need to have this. You know, if you want to know what's true, people say, I don't know what's true. Read your Bible. We have a Bible study on Thursday mornings. We're doing the book of Genesis. If you want to start at the beginning, the Fantastics would love to have you if you're free on Thursday mornings, it's on your schedule. Come on in. If you want to start another one, we'll start another one. We have some other ones. We have our men's ministry on Sunday nights. We need to know the truth because we don't. Ephesians 4 tells us, instead, we are to speak the truth, and this is important, in love. We will in all things grow up. The first step to Christian maturity is learning the truth and then living it out. And when you live it out, you're going to proclaim it because it matters that much to you. But you're not going to be a jerk about it. The world does not need one more jerk or jerkette. Myself included. The first thing, we speak the truth in love. We will then in all things grow up in Christ himself, who is the head of the church of us. From him the whole body is fitted and held together. Look at that. Fitted and held together by every supporting ligament. And as each individual part does its work, the body grows and builds itself up in love. I've been exercising because I'm fat. And I'm doing this thing called CrossFit, which I think translates from some other language as 
what hell feels like. It hurts. It's good. You will lose weight or you will die trying. I'm enjoying it. My coach Nick's a good guy. He sends me fist bump emojis on my phone. I'm not sure what to do with that. But you know what? I'm reminded of what every one of us has heard. No pain, no gain. That's true spiritually for us as well. But look here what happens when we live in the truth, when we make the decision that Pilate didn't make, when we overcome our fear to walk and to live in faith, when we don't keep the peace, when we don't do that, the body is fitted and held together. In CrossFit, I found ligaments and muscles I forgot existed. I've been sore. But what we find in the church is when we walk and act and live in truth and do the work of the gospel, not all the other extra extraneous stuff that we think is good, but what God's word tells us, the truth tells us to do, that's when the body tightens up and becomes one. It's when it gets healthy. That's when the church of whom Christ is the head gets healthy. Spiritual well-being has a requirement. The pain is that we stand for the truth in love and that we live it out in our lives in obedience. Why do we put up with the other? Why do we put up with the unhealthy, with the fear? Because like Pilate, we don't want to suffer any pain. Not for Jesus, not for anyone. We know if we share, <clears throat> we share who Jesus is in today's world, we could pay a price. This week in China, a church of 1,000 was shut down. Another church was carried off after that. Another mass grave was discovered in Nigeria as well. Christians are being slaughtered around the world. And we're afraid someone's going to look down on us for sharing Christ. We get the world we deserve, I suppose. We don't understand that the church will always crumble when we forget that our chief need is a Savior. The problem here with Pilate, he appreciates Jesus and he wants to give Jesus some help, but in no way will Pilate suffer or lose from his life for Jesus. And the question for us today, if we know Jesus and who he is, have we in our own lives been less than wholeheartedly committed to him? Have we been afraid? As we look at Pilate's face as he sees the crowd, have we been like him? When we were worried so much about what it costs us that we haven't done what we knew Christ was calling us to do. Have we led in our homes? Guys, have we been the leaders in our homes? Moms and dads, have we been the parents we should have been? Have we told our kids that the most important thing is knowing and living for Jesus? Or have we set a different example? You know, in the body of Christ, we find that it'll break down at every level, individually, relationships, marriages, families, homes, our community, our church community. It will break down at every level without the love of God and the truth of God to knit it, to hold it together. The body of Christ is held together 
when it knows and believes the truth of God and in love, it lives out and serves the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a heart issue. Like Pilate, the reason churches around the world are dying, it's about our hearts. It's not about tithing. It's not about time. It's not about any of this. I asked you guys to look at that last week. But in the end, all of that are symptoms of a heart issue. Is Jesus the most important thing to you? Because if he's not, nothing I can say or do, nothing we can have, no program, no activity, no event is going to change that. And what we need to learn is that we must fear God more. And what I mean by fear God is recognizing who God is and how he is above all things. This is not a punitive, God's going to get you kind of a fear. He's not a bully threatening us. It means that we need to trust Jesus and rely on him to stand up and to say what is true and what is right over all other things and all other authorities and all other people. When someone speaks what's wrong, are you willing to in love say what's right? When someone tells you at work to do what is wrong, are you willing to say that's not ethical or right? When someone at school says, shut up, that's not true, you can say, hey, you have your opinion, I have mine, but that doesn't mean that I can't have a different opinion than you and still love you. Will we fear God more than man? Will we read God's word, know that truth? Will we do God's work? Will we live the gospel? And will we love God's promises in his word enough that we believe he is going to get us where we need to go? Luke 12, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head or not, are numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. As spring comes, as you hear birds, as you see blades of grass, God knows all those things, and yet he says, they're of value to me, but much more do you belong to me. Your soul matters to me. Don't give in, because the truth between heaven and hell, between someone knowing Christ or not, may depend on your witness. You have an opportunity, and it may be a hard one, to stand for Jesus Christ and to trust him and rely on him more than other things. But the beauty of the gospel is if you say, I've blown it, I've messed it up, I want you to know it's okay. I want you to know it's okay today. The crowd reminds us as they're shouting out that in our natural state, we don't choose, Jesus, don't choose Jesus. In our natural state, as sinners, we don't want to live for him. We're afraid. We don't want to stand up for him. But God promises that he will be with us. Peter, in the book of Acts, reminds all the people, yeah, all the promises God said from the book of Genesis forward, all those promises you knew, yeah, you sent Jesus to die. You did. But God had a plan for that, too. The author of life, yeah, he died, but God raised him from the dead, Acts 3, 13 through 15. And to this, we are all now called in our brokenness to be 
witnesses. If you sit here and you think today, I'm not good enough. I, I'm not good enough. Maybe you see the faces in the crowd. I, I would have shouted the same thing. In my, my fear, I would have been like Pilate or them. I don't want this guy. He's not giving me the easy road. He's not giving me what I want. I want a church that just gives me five tips to make my life happier today. If you serve Christ, I guarantee your life will be happy. If you stand for what's right, I guarantee you that God will sustain you and give you joy. But I will never promise you that it'll be easy because I know the road that Jesus walked and the cross he called us to pick up, and it's hard. But as we are naturally God's enemies, as we are the ones who would shout crucify him, as we are the pilots that would say, hey, I'm not going to give up my life for this, God reminds us of one more face in the story. And that's the face of Barabbas. Think about Barabbas. Barabbas, in his honest moments, knew he was a sinner. He was a murderer. Not a, I didn't see that guy jogging on the side of the road murderer. He was a, I'm going to look you in the eye and kill you because I deserve to live and you deserve to die murderer. So as he hears the crowd shouting, crucify, crucify him. You have to wonder if Barabbas, knowing who he really is deep down inside, thinks they're talking about him. Maybe in that moment as he's on death row, so to speak, he thinks, I deserve it. I deserve it. Come and get me, I'm ready. And they do. And they lead him out, and he figures they're about to put that cross on his back. He's seen it before, the spectacle. And instead... Instead of that, another man is led away with the cross piece, the stipes of the cross, tied to him, bloody and beaten with a crown of thorns on his head. He doesn't know what to make of it. And suddenly they unshackle him. One of the Roman soldiers says, you're free, buddy, get out of here. And he goes over and the crowd, as he gets near, he's afraid, and one of them pats him on the shoulder and says, hey, welcome back. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know what to make of it. How could he be set free? He deserved death. He had earned it. What he said, what he had done, what he had not said, what he had never done, he knew he deserved it, and yet he's free. And some other guy is going to pay the price he knew he deserved. And that, my friends, is why this is the most important thing. That's why we must not compromise. Galatians 4 tells us the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. If you don't know what that means, when you get home, read Genesis 3, 15, 16, 17. Read right around there in the book of Genesis. God's plan set forth from the beginning. To redeem those who were under the law. See, God's word tells us we're sinners, but Jesus Christ and what he does sets us free by grace. That we may have adoptions as sons and daughters, and because we are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, saying, Daddy, intimacy with God. So we're no longer a slave. We are unshackled from the sin we once knew. But as children of God, as a son or a daughter, and if a son of God, then an heir through God. You were once God's enemies. You were once 
apart from God. You were once screaming at God, but God said, no, in my son Jesus Christ, you are set free. He's paying the price you and I deserved. So whatever you've done, you have to understand as we head in this Easter season, that's why we have to share it. That's why it's the most important message, because it changes our lives. In our fear and in our cowardice, we may have run from God. In our angry and our lust for blood, we say, God, I don't want to do it your way. And God says, no, no, you belong to me. You belong to me. I want to transform your life. It's okay that you blew it. It's okay that you put your stuff first. It's okay that you were angry, that you were naturally rebellious, because I knew that from the beginning, and I sent my one and only son for you. Friends, that's the story of Easter. That's the story we have to share. And when the church makes that the centrality of who we are in our hearts, it changes us. We are the building blocks. It unites us. We're the body held together. And it calls us to speak, to live the truth and love. You don't need to be a jerk for Jesus. That was never the point. He goes out and willingly lays down his life for you, even as a thief, a liar, and a murderer, you deserve it. It's the greatest message in the world. Dr. Paul Washer says something great about this. The gospel does not call us to receive Christ as an addition to our life. But the Easter story reminds us, it calls us to receive it as our life. If you didn't write down that list from last week, think about your own life, where your time's going, where your focus is going, your energy, your money. Not because Jesus is saying you have to tithe more. Most Christians don't tithe, you should. Not because Jesus is saying that you're not a good person. He's saying you're a sinner and you need him. Me too. But if your heart belongs to him, all the rest of this follows. Not only that, the church grows and is strong. So as we close today, friends, have you decided to follow Jesus? Have you ever given him your life? Because you can't give away what you don't have. Where are you in the crowd and Pilate? Where are you in the prison with Barabbas? What do you need to give to Jesus in your life? Let's pray. Father, that we would remember that whether we're rebels, whether we're cowards, whether we're the highest of the high, the lowest of the low, whether we feel we're one of the outlaws, one of the in-laws, one of the crooks or one of the straights, that we're all in need of your grace. God, that you would captivate each heart here, that we would understand what it means to belong to you, that we would understand what the Easter story is. It's not just a great example. It's not just an idea. It's the culminating event of human history that God predicts in the garden that he prophesies that one born of woman would crush the serpent's head. And that he would lay down his life, but God, he would have a resurrected life, that we would stand in the power of the resurrection, that we know we're rebels before you, that we know, like Pilate, we want to save our own skin, but we can't. So Father, if there's anyone here this day that does not know you, that they would understand that 
All they have to do if the Spirit is pleading with them is just confess that they are sinners, that they can't save themselves, that they can't get it right, that they can't get their life together, that they know that your Word is telling them that they're not, they're not all right, and that they want to give their lives to you, that you are pleading with them, that, they, that you are calling them, you have made them your very own. And God, we know that your Word promises us that if we confess with our mouths that you are Lord and believe in your heart that Christ is the, rose, the, the risen Lord, that He rose from the dead, that He is the redeemed Savior, that all that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God, that that would happen in this place. And Father, if that happens, that anyone has given their life, that they'd come up and talk to me and that we would be able to set them on the right path that way in their lives. And God, that we would not be ashamed of declaring with our lips, with our lives, and with our decisions what it means to belong to you. That no matter who we are, no matter how far we feel we've fallen, no matter how much we feel that sin has shackled us up, that you indeed came and laid down your life and rose again to set us free. We thank you for Easter and for what it means, and we pray for the courage to share it with a world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.